Hello, and thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. You know, during these history hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done by folks using the historical collections at the Hagley Library, especially scholars who have received funding support from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joining me today is Peter Astras, PhD candidate at St. John's University, and we'll be discussing his dissertation project titled, You Think You Know What Nature Is? The Literary and Historical Ecology of Lake, Lake Hopatgong. Peter, thanks so much. Thank you for having me and thank you to Hagley for uh, how welcoming they've been for two different visits. And thank you to also you. I know this is not our first conversation and being able to bounce ideas. And I have a dissertation that I've been working on centered around Lake Hopatgong as a body of water or a transformative body of water. Um, as in 1835, it was officially done being merged between two ponds for the Morris Canal and being able to explore throughout history how Lake Hopatgong has brought about agents and different lenses upon the region, all because of what it provides. And one key figure is Hudson Maxim, who perhaps shaped the period of the lake that is best known, the era where celebrities came and it was known as a resort. Mm. And this is the period that, in essence, you know, people consider it the glory time. You know, mm. Broadway stars and scientists and novelists were all here. And it's interesting enough because since our last conversation, the New York Times published an article called Lake Life because Lake Hopatgong is considered to be going through a resurgence right now hmm. as people are buying old historical homes, such as the ones that were around during Hudson, Hudson Maxim's times that were deteriorating and actually falling apart and are starting to restore them. And it's interesting being the New York Times how much that Hudson Maxim era actually left a strong pulse about what the lake is. And actually the article calls it the Joe Cook era because he was a Broadway star. He was known as a one man um, act essentially. Mm -hmm. And he was probably like the most famous where people were the most excited to meet him. Like he was on Broadway. He only did two silent films. So his impact hasn't been lasting. But it's really Hudson Maxim that really shaped it. Like uh, Joe Cook enjoyed the fruits of the area. He enjoyed coming here and being able to fish, being able to, with his famous motorboat, race through the lake. But Hudson Maxim actually really, really took the time, for better or worse, to shape it and say, this is what I want the lake to be in particular at a transformative time when it was from the uh, Morris Canal, then for a small period being considered for a reservoir to then essentially being an open and free recreational lake. Mm. So being able to examine Hudson Maxim and to get into his thinking and his motivations and to see this figure um, shape the lake through its perhaps its most well-known period mm. has been a fascinating journey. What, what was the Hudson Maxim era of the lake's history? Well, interestingly enough, um, DuPont had um, factories here building uh, explosives um, and Hudson Maxim was known for many things. I mean, from mousetraps to inventing the first smokeless gunpowder 
that many people credited for winning World War I. And he built a factory for Hudson Maxim in 1899. And Hudson Maxim himself has said that it could have been in the middle of a desert, he would have gone because he was interested in explosives. But by 1901, he had moved into the areas, renting a cottage for three years to then really starting to buy a property to becoming, owning about three fourths of Hapakong Borough. And from coming here for explosives uh, for DuPont, which is why his papers are actually at the Hagley Center, um, he really started to invest himself into what the area should look like. So while he's patenting his gunless powder and doing all of and writing about foreign policy and his perspectives of it, uh, he also took a time for what he considered, um, going back to the title of my dissertation, you know, what is nature for fighting for what he felt this lake should be. And through his um, influence, through his property acquisitions, he was really a driving force into what the lake ultimately became. Hmm. Well, I appreciate that you've introduced us, introduced us directly to your main points, but let's sort of zoom out and sort of set things up for the audience who might not be very familiar with uh, the place as you're describing. Well, for, but fundamentally, first things first, where is Lake Hopatcong? So the lake is actually in Northern Jersey. Um, it started off as one of the biggest glaciers in the um, in the area, which is why Northern Jersey is actually known for a lot of different lakes. Hmm. And the uh, Holocene period started to warm out and the bodies of water started to take shape. And specifically, Lake Hapakon takes up uh, two different counties in New Jersey. And it's got the Muskinetcong River connecting all the way up to Northern, um, well, connecting to Delaware going up North. And with the body of water, um, it, it actually was two different ponds, as I mentioned earlier, was a great resource going back as the climate was warming for the Lenape, who settled here for very different reasons, which was basically an environment that they impressively learned to cultivate and learn how to survive around. And as the climate kept changing, going up until European contact, um, they continued to develop how to use this as a resource, which later became an appealing point for European settlers as they found um, ways to survive in the region because of the Lenape, including how to um, hunt for animals, including um, the trails that the Lenape have are still major property lines. Um, route 10, which is a major route in North Jersey, was actually carved out for the Lenape and made it um, accessible for the initially the Dutch and later the English. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then let's sort of fast forward then to the era of internal improvement. You briefly mentioned the Morris Canal. Now my understanding that of uh, the that project is that it was basically the canal was more or less a, a fig leaf to cover what was essentially a financial scheme on the part of investors. Um, how then did that scheme end up so radically reshaping um, uh, the landscape of your area? That's a good question. And um, just to kind of tie into how the Lenape work because it kind of, mm. and their ways of life kind of connected to how people saw the lake region later. So they had set up a very conducive living environment for themselves. I mean, around the year 
1000 BC to zero, they started to have burial rituals. They started to have baskets and all this other things. They also started to clear the land through fires and it was a very sustainable environment, um, but it was also a very cold environment and New Jersey had seceded from the crown in 1775. So the one thing the area had was an abundance of land. And, and the Lenape way was actually really instrumental for the Dutch to understand how to be able to survive here. Later, the English took over and they were more interested in property rights. So they, they bought out the Lenape, well, bought out from their version up until 1832. And the region kind of was like in flux. It wasn't quite as in demand as Newark, New Jersey, that had the industrialism. So nobody really knew what to make of it. And legend has it that George McCulloch was fishing at Lake Hapakong in 1822. And he noticed a current coming from uh, Pennsylvania. And he had this idea that it could connect to the Passaic River in Essex. And from there, he started an all-out campaign. So now the, the region of the lake went from its natural, can we, uh, you know, can we export timber from it to I think we can actually help solve the energy crisis by being able to um, transport coal. Um, now digging a little bit deeper, it was actually William Penn who came up with the idea and people had actually fought for it many years before, but George McCulloch actually had the resources where he said, we can make this happen. So in a matter of months, because 1822 in June, he supposedly goes fishing by November, he got legislature to actually agree to this. They started to form up plans about how to make it, how to make the Morris Canal come to fruition. And part of one of the battles was the fact that the uh, Lake of Pakong region, because of the historical volcanoes and things like that, was very difficult to build over. Uh, once he convinced them that it was worth it, and again, the energy crisis, and now the lake had become a, a financial resource, much more so than it had beforehand, where people mm. buying up like thousands of acres for practically nothing. Um, they actually started to come up with new innovations to make Lake Hapakong, an integral part of the Morris Canal, including um, explosives at the time, which included hanging people over a cliff and just leaving explosives and having to bring them back up where people complained they were fishing and rock would come falling into the lake, to these inclined planes that scientific journals wrote were very innovative for the time where one person can man each station and lift a boat up with some um, series of pulleys and ropes. So the Morris Canal provided the um, industrial period of the lake before mm. Hudson Maxim came in and turned into recreational. It wasn't a short period from 1829 to 1924, but at the height of it, the lake had really become a linchpin for solving at least um, the Northeast region's energy crisis mm. and provided a lot of valuable coal. And what about the hydrology of the lake? How is that altered by the canal? Well, there was actually two ponds. What, um, what a lot of people refer to Lake Hapakong was actually called the Great Pond. And where the Hapakong State Park, which is my background, um, taken from about that region. And there was a smaller pond in the northern part, deeper toward Pennsylvania, that was a small pond. In order to merge them together, 
they actually had to create flooding through damming. And it took about a decade, like initially it was smaller mm. flooding, create a lot of property damage and unfortunately washed away some Lenape valuable lands. By 1835, the damming process was complete and it's kind of interesting to see the maps and there's a beautiful map at the Hagley Center that um, Hudson Maxim has that you can kind of see the imprint. So essentially through forced flooding, they created this large body of water that we see through the writings of Hudson Maxim and people today talking about nature that is actually, I don't know if I will call it an artificial lake because it existed, but it's not like a purely natural glacial creation. Mm -hmm. So that was the lake that it left behind once it was no longer necessary to have the Morris Canal because of railroads that then became an object of desire for real estate and people like Hudson Maxims to have a nice natural retreat. Now, was that part of the attraction for the DuPont company? Uh, the fact that it's been tied into an industrial infrastructure of transportation um, and of energy distribution? Actually, yes. Well, well, the one thing is during the Morris Canal, the um, railroads transport a lot of coal in different aspects, but the population hadn't necessarily grown. So it provided them a region where they're able to test their explosives. Hmm. Um, there, there's still an army base that you can hear explosives today, but not to the level of that it was back then. And the fact that there were railroads actually made it a desirable locale and able to be able to experiment and also being able to transport goods. And that happened around the 1870s where explosive companies started to move in and the DuPont shortly after. And then the um, 1899 where Hudson Maxim by DuPont was recognized as somebody that could really um, benefit from having a laboratory in the area. So it, it's all a chain of events. So the Morris Canal did actually bring in that explosives period and Hudson Maxim. And yeah, let's enter your main actor here, Hudson Maxim. What is his, or what was his background? Um, where was he from? Who were his people? So it's interesting. I mean, he entered Lake Capacon relatively late in his life, or he had already made a name for himself as a scientist. Uh, he ended up in New Jersey, which is, uh, you know, the home of Thomas Edison. And Edison himself admired him. Um, he was called the most versatile man in America because he wrote, science books, he wrote poetry, and he was just interesting in everything from mosquitoes to the region to agriculture. So he enters the area and he himself said he would have gone to the desert if he had to, but he really, from his own account, started to fall in love with it. He was always known for being headstrong. Uh, one of the stories that he loved to tell was when he was interviewed to be a headmaster, so at some point he was a teacher, and the committee asked him about how would you handle this bully that has driven out the last three people in your position? And he said he showed them his muscles <laughs> and he was hired on the spot. So he wasn't shy about um, giving himself a claim. And he mm. often wrote to the local newspapers. So he moved into a modest cottage and in a matter of three years bought up an estate and a few years thereafter, almost of the Hipakon borough and was fully invested in what the area should look like. It became something of, for lack of a better term, an object of desire. Like he saw himself as a steward over mm -hmm. this body of water. 
that at the time was still controlled by the Morris Canal. Mm. Well, what did the lake and its landscape come to mean to Maxim? What was his vision? Well, it came for him to be an area of an escape um, and many different speeches that he gave in front of committees in Trenton to argue against the Morris Canal. For a scientist, he really did appreciate the hyperbole. He would talk about people that were dying, including um, one of the borough's presidents, and he would bring them to Lake Apacom. In a matter of months, they would be restored to their jolly fat selves. And the way he actually wrote about nature was very different than the way he wrote about his science. He very much gave almost magical powers to the lake. And for him, it, it, was, uh, it was a special place around the city. You know, people at these um, meetings question, well, you also happen to own most of the area around the lake, um, which later might be why he deferred to when he created the Lake Apacon um, Commission to a different president. But he, he was not shy for finding whatever literary skills he had because he was a wonderful writer to create this as pure magic. He even made um, house guests write poems about it. Um, I actually do have a poem if you don't oh, mind great. me reading. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, he very much was a literary fan and somebody named Paul West visited his house and left him a poem. And the one thing that I always found is he is a component in the poetry and he sent it to a local newspaper in 1912. And he said, oh, and this is from the Hagley Center. Oh, the lake was like a silver streak that gleamed along the side. The sky was one long pura blue with azure glorified. Oh, the scenery. I have to read the exclamation mark. Um, oh, the scenery, a successive gob of greenery. And my evil past sped by me with its terrors to defy me. And I hate to interrupt the poem, but that was a common theme that you could leave behind your illness. You could leave behind whatever it was that urban life brought to you when you came to Lake Capacon. Um, and it took two men to watch us beating faster than the crows. One to say, hi, boy, she's coming. And the other, there she goes. Paul Revere was never in it, not with us one single minute. On that speeding, rushing, roaring, ripping, whizzing, whirring day when we motored out with Maxim on his swiftest fifth of May. So I just like the poem because it encapsulates so much of what Maxim has said through many of his longer writings that Paul West wrote here. That's very, a very charming uh, piece of verse. Um, so what else, so, so the Hudson Maxim papers are held in the Hagley Library, and um, could you maybe explain uh, how you found them uh, useful, what you were able to find within them, what you were able to use them for? Well, I, I actually started off with a Google search. I, I went to the local museum, and we have a wonderful local historian. And surprisingly, there were no papers housed anywhere here. And I found them in Delaware at the height of COVID. So unfortunately, I had to wait a little bit. 
And, and then thanks to the wonderful people of Hagley, I was told about these different grants and scholarships to be able to more than just visit for one day since it is about three hours away. And once I was able to get there, it was, um, their specific folder is actually called Hudson Maxim and Lake Apakong. And, you know, he, he sold a lot of his patents to DuPont and along with it donated his papers. And he, he loved to write letters. Mm. And one of the things that I enjoyed finding at the Hagley Center was behind the newspaper articles that he would flip would be his thoughts for it including anything from taxes. Um, he, he fought like an $8 tax that he got one year because he bought the lake rights um, in order to kind of get the uh, Morris Canal out. And unpublished manuscripts, um, clippings that he found were amusing to himself. And it really kind of gave this mindset. And the one interesting aspect was he was actually an agent behind almost everything that happened. Nothing kind of escaped his lens for the time period. So he may not have been a celebrity people were the most excited to meet, but he was the one that was actively always fighting um, for every little issue. Just to kind of exemplify that, um, there were these chestnut trees at about 1912 that were starting to rot away from disease. And I I'm not sure how he ended up orchestrating putting them down but he was um, very much the face of it and the president of the Mount Arlington Protective and Improvement Agency actually reached out and said well you know this is one reason we don't have mosquitoes at Lake Hipakon which is a very common theme throughout history and Hudson Maxim actually wrote a very long piece back explaining about the disease and what would happen to the chestnut trees and why they were not essential um, and he even like two years later is continuously writing letters saying, you know, if people would just put petroleum on their property, we wouldn't have mosquitoes. But he took everything to heart, like one simple letter, like even from an environmentalist, he considered himself more of an expert and was saying, no, hold on a second. And that kind of fervor really kind of shows the mindset of the person who did not back up from the uh, Morris Canal, who mm. wouldn't let other people kind of really influence what the lake should be and and even in terms of being an environmentalist he actually did at times wonder how much of a population lake could pack on to hold because of its irregular shape partly you can see behind me if uh, somebody's watching the video that can actually hold six times the population of the same size lake if it was round and he said if we were ever to develop the whole shoreline it would actually lead to an increased level of pollution which in 2019 led to the algae outbreak and the lake being shut down. So it's kind of interesting knowing the modern history of the lake living here to see in Hudson Maxim warning about the very thing and the very small outlet that Lake Kapakang actually has in comparison to Lake George. Mm. And it's sort of uh, another way for him to protect his interest. It's a way of saying, well, I can develop my part of the shoreline, yeah. but we really must leave the rest alone. How how was it that um, the Morris Canal came to um, into conflict with Hudson Maxim's vision for the lake? Well, by the time Hudson Maxim actually came, the Morris Canal was not as profitable as it had been um, because of rail lines and alternatives. 
So I haven't been a been weekend and other canals now starting to employ the same science, which at the time was considered revolutionary, you know, the inclined planes and how fast boats can move through. Um, Hudson Maxim kind of gave credit to it. He said, you know, I, I know it was a great achievement for the time, but he called it a relic. So with its popularity declining, he actually launched a public campaign against the detrimental effects that it has upon the lake. Hmm. And he, while also launching a, a public campaign, I found something really interesting in Hagley. He also launched a legal campaign, which might have actually been what ended up ultimately ending the Morris Canal, where he found uh, Nathaniel Niles, who at that point had been deceased, had bought the land under the lake. King George at the time, as I mentioned earlier, land was abundant in the area, had sold for auction the actual land, and he helped form the Lake Attackon Commission, did not make himself president, but the commission joined together to buy the land underneath so that when they actually closed the Morris Canal, they could not turn it into a reservoir like they wanted to. Mm. And all the complications that came, like he got an $8 tax check, I mean, a tax bill for it. He was very upset about it from the tax line. It was another $46 bill. And you kind of get these insights about his mentality about he didn't like to kind of have others impose upon what he wanted to do. And he actually, Louis Schwab was the president and he's these letters at Lake Hapakong, I mean, at the Hagley Center, where he would boat over to Schwab's house and say, you haven't called upon me. We have issues to talk about. And Schwab would write him letters that I found in the folders apologizing. I'm so sorry. My wife is taking care of the children. I, I really had to put the kids to bed. And then one time Schwab is like, I'm so sorry. You know, I'll be honest. I played golf today. And you can kind of read a little bit of Hudson Maxim's frustration um, and, and just kind of connecting the letters together I feel like Hudson Maxim didn't make himself the president because people questioned his land interests. So he had this commission where essentially he was a president, but not entitled. And by owning those land rights, it, once they were able to close the canal, they were estimated at $3 million. The New Jersey for an imminent domain wasn't worth it to acquire those lands and make it a reservoir. And then shortly thereafter, they relinquished those rights and it became the public lake that it is today, once again. And then what did um, Maxim do well, now that he's established a reasonable hegemony over uh, the lake? So that's actually a really interesting question. Um, there, there's actually an article that he himself saved um, in the 1820 something that said uh, Hudson Maxim who put hop in Hapakong and he died in 1827, but he actually had an idea later in his life that I found fascinating. Uh, 1927? He died, no, uh, 1827. Okay. 1827. Um, no, 1927, you're right. Yeah, okay. Just double uh, I'm, so excited. I'm so excited to talk about this article. I got my dates mixed up, but he apparently had an idea to turn the area around the lake into a city, hmm. which is counterintuitive to all his writings about how the lake is, you know, prone to pollution. And the article, you know, carefully says that it's a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, it was his last idea that he really wanted for the lake before he passed away. 
but the lake actually pays really good homage to him to helping shape the region and the important role that he had. And I found no other references to why he would want to turn the region around Lake Apakong into a city, but he continued fighting for whatever he thought the lake should be right up until the end, even if he didn't have the time or didn't have an idea that could come um, to be. But that was one of the last things I could find about him was, you know, how much he wanted to expand around it. And he also wrote a piece for his 20th anniversary on a lake that, you know, in this, I like to call this kind of reflective period that he was in. And he said, when Columbus discovered America, he landed on one of the West Indian islands. He never reached the mainland. Jerome Bonaparte visited Lake Apakong and was struck by its beauty. I myself am one of Lake Apakong's discoverers. I first came here 20 years ago, this 4th of July. So he saw himself as like one of the extensions of people who discovered the regions because Lake Hapakong had not been on the grid. Well, it had for the Morris Canal, but had not been on the grid as a lake to the, um, to the extent that it had been after Hudson Maxim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he was very self-consciously a historical actor in that sense. Uh, yeah. That's really neat. Um, was he responsible for bringing the celebrities and the um, uh, uh, making like Hapat Kong, an attractive destination in his day? He was actually. Um, Rex Beach, who had wrote over 30 novels, was a best-selling novelist at the time. Um, a lot of these names may not um, have the same ring that they do today as Hollywood changed. And Rex Beach wrote really popular novels that were fun to read, but maybe um, as literary classics did not hold up. Um, he, for Rex Beach, introduced him to the lake, and he would even write, he loved to write to the local newspapers about essentially every little detail how Rex Beach is fixing up his property. Um, when, when they call it the Joe Cook era, he didn't first visit until 1917, which is about 17 years after Hudson Maxim, and then he didn't come back until about 1924, and then he kind of became, so he actually if not directly recruiting people like Rex Beach, helped form the area that people like Joe Cook fell in love with. And Joe Cook not come until 1924. Unfortunately, the region in the 1930s fell into a depression, much like New Jersey and the rest of the United States, were prominent names that enjoyed his version of nature, uh, for better or worse, but didn't actually help create the region that drew them into it. And what about the remainder of the 20th century? How do we get to the present day? Um, what has happened on the lake? You had briefly mentioned that, at least during the COVID flight from New York, um, the lake seemed to be enjoying a certain renaissance. Um, how do we get from there to here? So yeah, I mean, the, the automobile changed things a little bit for Lake Apacom because the one feature was you can hop on a rail and people started to examine different locales um, throughout the United States. But the one thing that happened in the 1830s is obviously the depression in New Jersey itself. Um, we had the Hindenburg, we had the, um, all these different things happen that New Jersey itself suffered uh, greatly during the Great Depression. So people were not coming out to spend money and enjoy resort living. 
Later, it turned into a year-round community um, because during Maxim's time, there would be pamphlets that tried to advertise, come out in the winter. It's actually, you know, you can enjoy the ice fishing. But during the winter, it was essentially a, um, a ghost town. So as the, the late year community formed, it also started to form um, higher into the hills. And the community took shape, which became not this exciting locale, but became more practical living space. Um, in fact, in the 1980s, the New York Times wrote about the overdevelopment hurting the lake, and there were some changes implemented about septic systems and mm -hmm. modernizing mm -hmm. the area, which happened. And then it kind of found its balance of year-round, but being environmentally, you know, to a degree, environmentally conscious. But the other thing that happened in New Jersey is the global warming impact that it were throughout the 20th century, went up three degrees, which is one of the top warming locales in the United States. Um, I believe it's ranked like 47th. Uh, so the lake also had that impact and um, different agencies were formed to help protect the lake. They're doing a wonderful job. Mm -hmm. Then COVID hit and people were looking to kind of find more um, exotic for lack of terminology. And there was all these mansions that were starting to deteriorate, wonderful lakefront property that people started to develop again. And it brought a population increase that you know only the future can tell how much it would last, um, how much people are staying year round. But the one thing that is actually a selling point is this period of the 1920s that Hudson Maxim thought the lake would be forever. Um, so now we have the Hudson Maxim vision combined with the year round community. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting to see from an environmental sense, how that would kind of shape out because while they make references to the lake, to the Joe Cook era, it's also much more populated lake than it had been during that period. Well, Peter, it's just a fascinating story and thank you so much for sharing it with me. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for listening to it. And, and like I said, thank you to Hagley for letting me discover these resources in Delaware of all places. Uh, <laughs> right. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online at hagley.org. Don't be a stranger.